This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, my name is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 45 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. And in many ways, this is actually a special edition of this podcast because we're very fortunate to have on the phone line, I would say, the founder of this way of looking at the Arctic and the polar regions in general, somebody who has written scores of books and articles and chapters on the Arctic and environmental governance and regimes and international institutions. He is the Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at UC Santa Barbara. Professor Oren Young, great to have you on the phone line from Walcott, Vermont. Thanks, Eric. And uh, that's actually the place this interview is actually inspired. In some ways, this whole episode is a commemoration of the 30th anniversary of the seminal book, Oren, that, uh, that you wrote, published in November 1992, Arctic Politics, Conflict and Cooperation in the Circumpolar North. And uh, just uh, rereading parts of the book, Oren, especially the, the preface, which uh, you sign off uh, as have written on New Year's Day 1992 in Walcott, Vermont, so uh, same place we're at right now. And uh, that was just a few days after the fall of the Soviet Union, the final dissolution of the Soviet Union, which uh, took place on the 26th of December 1991. You wrote the uh, preface to this book on New Year's Day 1992. So a lot to reflect over and how things have evolved in the field of um, Arctic politics, uh, Arctic governance, Arctic geopolitics. So we'll dig into uh, a number of these topics, plus, of course, the uh, recent uh, passing of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who played a hugely instrumental role in uh, changing the uh, the situation in the 1980s when it comes to uh, the Arctic. So we'll get into all these uh, these issues and more, of course, also the current uh, situation with the Arctic Council following the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. But first, perhaps you can just tell us a bit about the genesis of this book, Arctic Politics from 1992. It consists of a number of essays that you have been writing over the course of some years before 1992, perhaps. So you can just uh, give us some idea of uh, how this book came about. Absolutely. Well, as you point out, it originated a series of essays, and they go back into the 1980s. So in the 1980s, as the Cold War began to wind down, and as Gorbachev, whom you mentioned, began to focus attention on the Arctic, a number of us began to think, well, the Arctic in some ways is a distinctive region in international society, which has a kind of agenda of issues of its own, many focused around environmental protection, sustainable development. And again, we began to think that Maybe there are emerging opportunities here for international cooperation. And so we began to develop the notion of the Arctic as a region which could become the focus for cooperative initiatives. And that would in some ways play into this idea of Arctic exceptionalism, something you talk a bit about in the book, right? But it's not maybe, there's different ways of interpreting that phrase, right? Something as the Arctic as a place sometimes uh, said to be devoid of conflict, which maybe is not the case. But the, the Arctic exceptionalism that perhaps you were looking at in the book was maybe that it was a place that was that was different, but also reflected some of the trends happening in other parts of the globe. Is that uh, basically your approach? Yes, to it? Uh, we could 
come back to this word exceptionalism because it's become kind of controversial over the years. But our idea at the time was that the Arctic was in some ways somewhat peripheral to the kind of mainstream issues of international relations. It was of interest primarily to the Arctic countries themselves and not so much of interest to countries on the outside. We also had the sense that while during the Cold War, the Arctic had been a deployment zone for the military forces of the superpowers, the Arctic itself was not really a focus of conflict or tension or contention. And that there were a number of issues focused in the Arctic having to do, as I said, largely with environmental issues, sustainable development, uh, human well-being, and among the residents of the Arctic, that actually could become focal points for cooperation on the part of the Arctic countries in a way that would not generate sort of major problems in the outside world. And we even thought this, you remember, as we're coming out of the Cold War, we even thought that by initiating cooperation in the Arctic, we might be able to take some steps which would suggest opportunities or ways or mechanisms for international cooperation, which could be of interest to people in other regions of the world. That's very interesting. So you both had the idea of initiating a field of study, uh, a way to sort of all these theories uh, of international relations in general, but also you had some normative intents as well, that maybe you, your, your work could perhaps spark some of these processes that would create more cohesion, better relations in the Arctic. Is that uh, a sort of a dual that's mission? That's right. So the two-sided notion, on the one hand, my background comes from political science, international relations, and in the field more generally, during that time, we were starting to think about what we call international regimes, that is, kind of cooperative arrangements focused around very specific issues or topics, fisheries or ozone depletion or transboundary pollution or whatnot, and the idea is that these cooperative arrangements might actually be feasible or be possible even in situations in which there was a kind of a broader encompassing setting that involved more kind of geopolitical concerns. And so on the one hand, um, I thought that, you know, maybe the Arctic could be an area where some of these kind of theoretical ideas about international regimes might be applied. Maybe we could make concrete applications of some of these broad notions to this emerging distinctive region of the Arctic. And conversely, if we had some success in the Arctic um, with these kind of applications of these theoretical ideas, maybe that would generate some insights that would be of interest to people in the outside world. 
And at the time of the writing of this book in 1992, or it was published in 1992, I guess the writing was taking place some years before that. But that was the time of the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy that uh, was initiated by Finland. And uh, even in this book, I was surprised rereading this. Uh, I was surprised to, to see that uh, the Arctic Council was mentioned as a as an idea, as something that had been proposed. Of course, it wasn't actually established until 1996. But these ideas were kind of in circulation at that time. Um, very, very much so. And so, um, Eric, let me just tell you that going back to the mid-1980s, um, I got the idea that we could establish a non-governmental process which we came to call the Working Group on Arctic International Relations. And I went to some major foundations and I eventually got a grant, a sizable grant from the MacArthur Foundation to initiate this thing we call the Working Group on Arctic International Relations, a kind of a off-the-record, non-governmental mechanism which will allow us to have people in quite significant positions, including government officials from all of the Arctic countries, meeting on a number of occasions off-the-record to discuss among ourselves to build a network of well-placed people to talk about could we initiate what would become intergovernmental arrangements like the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy. Interestingly enough, the MacArthur Foundation uh, awarded that grant. It went officially to Dartmouth College in the first week in October 1987. And that was the same week that Gorbachev made his but became his famous Murmansk speech calling for us to think about the Arctic as a zone of peace. And so this was going back to the mid-late 1980s, and these were the first steps that really began to get the ball rolling, and one of the first formal outcomes of that process was um, the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy articulated in the Rovaniemi Declaration in the spring of 1991. Really interesting. And in some ways, I wanted to talk to you about and get your thoughts on some of these circles that maybe have gone full, some full circles perhaps in these in these historical processes that uh, we're going to be talking about here on this uh, episode of uh, the Polar Geopolitics podcast. Rovaniemi, of course, uh, playing a key role uh, in the founding of, as you mentioned, the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy. It's also the place where um, Mike Pompeo, a couple of years ago, made this uh, rather dark speech about the uh, the Trump administration's outlook on the Arctic, which in some ways, to me, felt a bit like kind of the end of this era that had started perhaps with the, the Murmansk speech, the 1987 Gorbachev Zone of Peace speech. Uh, do you see that in, in some ways as well, that there is a, a certain, uh, that the optimism of the late 80s and the early 90s have somehow come full circle and now it's a much more dark outlook on great power competition? Yes, yeah, I think there's no question that that's the case. I mean, we can look at this both globally and also as it manifests uh, in the Arctic. And so one of the things that's happened, Eric, in the last 30 years is that the links, the connections between the Arctic and the global 
system has gotten stronger and stronger. I mentioned that in the late 1980s, we somehow thought that the Arctic was a kind of a peripheral region, which was in some ways separate from the mainstream of global international politics. And it was possible to kind of think about the Arctic as a, to some degree, a sort of a separate domain. But in a number of respects, the links between the Arctic and the global system have gotten stronger and stronger over the last few decades. Some of this has to do with things like climate change. We know that the impacts of climate change are showing up in the Arctic more dramatically now than anywhere else on the planet. Temperatures are increasing in the Arctic at roughly four times the global average. We know that the Arctic has become more and more significant in terms of global economic relationships with the opening up of Arctic sea routes and the dramatic increase in the exploitation of um, Arctic non-renewable resources, oil and gas, for example. We know that the Arctic is somehow now more connected in people's thinking to geopolitical relationships. Um, we know that great powers like the, in the 1980s, we weren't thinking of China as another global superpower. Today, we think of China as one of the major powers. And China has made it very clear that they have a very distinct interest in the Arctic. China has described itself as a near-Arctic state and has taken a rapidly growing interest in the Arctic. So, to go to your question, Eric, the Arctic is more tightly coupled to the global system today, and the global system is more pervaded by the sense an atmosphere of conflict among the great powers than it was in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, so yes, we do have this less optimistic kind of perspective than we had at that time. And we're still we're now very much focused on the question of does this more conflictual atmosphere have to pervade everything? Or are there still ways that one could find opportunities for some forms of cooperation on some issues, even though we recognize the more conflictual atmosphere of today's world? I mean, putting aside all the, the current issues with Russia and Ukraine and, and the, the deep source of conflict that has created, just this globalization of the Arctic that you're talking about, Oren, um, is that in and of itself too much for the Arctic to really handle in terms of governance? Can, can it be a global region? It's too difficult to operate something like the Arctic Council as a kind of a club of the eight Arctic countries plus the permanent participants and expect to be able to use the Arctic Council as an effective mechanism for addressing Arctic issues. Now we have to recognize that to address most of the significant Arctic issues, we have to find ways 
to take into account the concerns and the interests and the perspectives of many more actors. And so maybe you want to come to this later, but you see the Arctic Council opening up and becoming a forum in which many more actors, both non-Arctic states and non-state actors are beginning to have a voice in the activities of the Arctic Council, which is easily understandable because in order to address Arctic issues, whether it's climate change, whether it's shipping, whether it's some of the political issues, um, we have to listen to and take into consideration the concerns and perspectives and interests of a much wider range of players. And of course, that makes a much more complicated system of players and interests and perspectives to think about than what we were thinking going back into the 1990s. We thought, well, we can just deal with Arctic issues within the context of this very restricted regional body. So to accommodate this major shift in in interest in the Arctic, um, would this, do you think it's possible to retool the Arctic Council, some sort of restructuring of the Arctic Council, or is a a new kind of regime necessary at this point? And and once again, putting aside the conflict in Ukraine and all the the complications that creates uh, vis-a-vis Russia. Well, one of the things that's really important to bear in mind, Eric, is that um, if you think about the Arctic, there are a lot of governance arrangements that are in place today that are relevant to Arctic activities, and they are not actually dependent upon the Arctic Council. I like to think that this complex of governance arrangements that are relevant to the Arctic are the the global constitutive agreements like the Law of the Sea, which applies to the Arctic just like it applies to anywhere else, it governs marine activities in the Arctic. Then we have a number of international regimes which are global in scope but apply perfectly well to the Arctic. We have the regime for climate change. We have the regime for ozone-depleting substances. We have the regime for persistent organic pollutants. We have the regime for mercury. We have the regime for trade in endangered species. We have the regime for whaling. And all of these are international regimes, but they apply to the Arctic just as well as they apply elsewhere. And then we have quite a sizable number of Arctic specific regimes. For example, we have the Svalbard regime based on the Treaty of Paris of 1920. We have the agreement on polar bears going back to 1973. We have the Central Arctic Ocean Fisheries Agreement, which is a separate legally binding agreement. We have the Central Bering Sea Fisheries Convention. So there are a lot of governance arrangements. Now, the Arctic Council is a 
forum for talking about governance. It's not a governance system itself like these other arrangements, but it's very interesting as a forum for the discussion of ideas about governance arrangements and what kinds of new initiatives might be possible in what particular areas. But looking at these various governance arrangements and thinking about the changing global political atmosphere, and even more specifically about um, the situation following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we can ask the question, what has been the impact of these new developments on these various governance arrangements that are applicable to the Arctic? The Arctic Council has never really been a one-stop shop, right? It's been part of this regime complex that you've written so much about over the years. It's a forum, which is exactly what it's called in in the Ottawa Declaration. It's not a governance system in the sense of a set of rules or regulations applicable to activities in a particular place or dealing with a particular activity, Um, but it's a forum for the discussion of um, needs for governance and for opportunities for governance. Let me give an example. So going back to the early 2000s when um, Arctic shipping, commercial shipping in the Arctic was increasing quite rapidly, the Arctic Council um, initiated something called the Arctic Marine a shipping assessment. So that was an activity of the Arctic Council, which led to the Arctic Marine Shipping Report in 2009. Now, the Arctic Council has no legal authority to take any action based on that report, but that report launched a series of activities and initiatives within the International Maritime Organization. And the International Maritime Organization eventually, in 2015-2016, established what we now know as the Polar Code, which is a governance mechanism setting forth a set of regulatory arrangements pertaining to commercial shipping and they are actually in polar waters, it's bipolar. There's no question that the activities of the Arctic Council were quite significant in energizing that process and playing a role in stimulating the International Maritime Organization to take action regarding commercial shipping in the Arctic, but the Arctic Council did not take any decisions about commercial shipping, which would launch the governance system for commercial shipping. And that's very characteristic of what the Arctic Council has been and what its role has been is to draw attention to emerging issues, to help to frame them 
for consideration as governance questions to gather relevant information and observations to bring together in off-the-record settings a variety of actors and to provide them with a convenient meeting place, kind of arena, a forum, as it's called, to have off-the-record conversations about these things, but not to make any legally binding decisions. This catalytic role obviously has been uh, very important over the years, Orrin, as you as you've uh, very well uh, point out there. Can the Arctic Council continue to play this role without Russia today? This is, of course, what we are, those of us who are <laughs> in my world dealing with Arctic issues, and this is kind of what we are chewing on 24-7. But one thing is quite clear is the Arctic Council as the Arctic Council cannot function in any formal sense without Russia. The Ottawa Declaration says that the members of the Arctic Council are the eight Arctic states, Russia being one of them. And the decisions of the Arctic Council um, will be taken by consensus of the members. There are no provisions in the Ottawa Declaration for expelling a member or for taking decisions in the absence of members. That's not to say that the other Arctic countries couldn't, independent, separately, outside the Arctic Council, decide to cooperate in various ways. But it's very clear, I think, that there's no way that the other seven Arctic state members of the council could act and say they are acting as the Arctic Council. I mean, it's something of a dilemma then. With 25 years invested in the Arctic Council and all the successes that it's had in this time, during this time, it seems kind of a shame to abandon that and perhaps start a parallel Arctic 7 organization. This is, a really, this is a, sort of the crux of what we're struggling with today. You know, I believe that the single most important accomplishment of the Arctic Council since its inception in 1996 and even going back to the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy in 1991 has been to engage the Arctic states, to engage Russia and the rest of the Arctic states. I mean, after all, Russia has approximately half of the coastline of the Arctic, roughly 50% of the residents who live north of 60 degrees north. Russia and the rest together form the Arctic, and the Arctic Council has been a mechanism for active dialogue between what we might think of as the two halves of the Arctic. I think that's the most significant accomplishment of the Arctic, of the Arctic Council, And I personally think that there's no real way to address Arctic regional issues um, without the engagement of Russia. Now, how can we do that? Can we do that through the Arctic Council? Well, that's the question. One of the most important things to think about in this context is 
the IT council has, on the one hand, the meetings of what are called the senior Arctic officials. These are diplomats who are representatives of foreign ministries, and they meet on a regular basis as the diplomatic component of the Arctic Council. But the Arctic Council also has a series of six working groups, and it also has a series of expert groups on focused topics. One of the questions that we're very much thinking about is, might the working groups be able to continue to function in a constructive and effective way, even if it's difficult at the moment to hold meetings of the representatives of the foreign ministries? So all of these are questions which all of us who are part of the community who work on these things are chewing on, trying to come up with um, options, trying to figure out what it could do. As you say, it seems like a pity to throw away the very significant accomplishments of the last 30 years. Um, on the other hand, we've talked about the increasing kind of politicization and the increasing coupling of the Arctic to the sort of global geopolitical situation. And, you know, I think we can't just close our eyes and say, well, let's believe, let's make believe that hasn't happened. That's a very interesting moment. And, I mean, going back to this uh, 1987 speech by Gorbachev in Murmansk, um, and now with his uh, passing just a few weeks ago, Warren, um, could you perhaps say a few words about his importance as a historical figure in the Arctic context? I mean, as you discussed, you were you were working on these issues, trying to cultivate some some um, initiatives towards working towards more Arctic um, cooperation, Arctic governance uh, initiatives already in the mid-late 1980s. But was the, the Gorbachev intervention, was that really the turning point? And was that something that you credit to him specifically? Or was that more the sort of the, the zeitgeist of that moment in time? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, these ideas were percolating. I mean, if you go back to what was happening in... Arctic capitals in the late 1980s. There was, um, at the time, the Prime Minister of Canada was a man named Brian Mulroney. And the Canadians were already thinking a lot about Arctic cooperation. Um, Mulroney went to Leningrad and it was then, then St. Petersburg, then Leningrad, in 1988 and gave a speech in which he talked about Arctic cooperation. There were a number of people in Russia who were talking about Arctic cooperation at the time, some of them in the scientific community, some of them in the policy community. In the fall of 1988, we had a conference called uh, in Leningrad which was built as a scientific conference, but it was an opportunity. I was at that conference, a number of other 
people were there. And it was a, in, the, in the margins of that conference, we talked a lot about um, Arctic cooperation. And it clearly began to hammer out the elements, the components of what we began to think of as the Arctic Zone of Peace kind of policy narrative. Um, nevertheless, um, all these things were certainly kind of in the atmosphere. But still, the Gorbachev speech, I mean, he was, after all, a, a very high-profile figure. And you know, I don't necessarily subscribe to the great man theory of history, but I think when it comes to uh, putting issues on policy agendas, getting attention, making issues seem to be, to be, to push them up the policy agenda to a high enough level to be taken seriously in the policy community, that initiatives like Gorbachev's can make a difference. And so I think he was really an important figure in giving kind of visibility to what was a set of ideas that were percolating in a community of people extending. I mean, this was not something that just came totally out of his head without any kind of other people thinking about these ideas and that is percolating in the relevant community. So he, he gave voice in a very prominent way to what was emerging in the circle of those of us who were thinking and talking about the issues. Are you in any ways surprised how things have turned out? I mean, of course, looking back to 1992 when the book came out or 1987 at the time of the speech or some of the work you've been doing even before that, going back to the 70s on uh, on the Arctic. Uh, are you surprised the way things have played out over these 30, 40 years? Well, I was, I was somewhat surprised and pleased how, how much we were able to to, to run with the ball of the Arctic Zone of Peace narrative in the 1990s. I don't know if I would say surprised by um, what happened in the 2010s, but certainly, um, you know, it's been a it's been a very dramatic return to a more conflictual. Periods. I mean, I think there are there is a certain kind of um, cyclical pattern to these things. I don't think we have a kind of a purely linear progression that moves forward throughout time. I think it's not. But I don't think it's a big surprise that we have a return to a more conflictual period. Um, Eric, I think the question is, can we can we salvage something significant from the period experiences of the last thirty years? So it's not so it's not like two steps forward, two steps back, or the two steps forward only one step back. In other words, can we even though we see the cycle and we're saying, well, okay, 
we know that this um, cycle that coming back to a more greater conflict is not a big surprise, but can we can we find things in the experience of the last 30 years that could be um, maintained or retained or protected from the pushback that we're getting to the consequence of the kind of re-emergence of a more conflictual period. The 1992 book, uh, Arctic Politics, a seminal work in the study, the social science study of the Arctic, and that was actually the real intention of the book. Are you satisfied? How do you think that field, as a a scholarly field, studying the Arctic from various uh, social science perspectives, whether it's political science, international relations, economics, and others, how do you feel the field has developed in these years since that book was published 30 years ago? Well, of course, there's much, much more to be done. Um, But I think we've really accomplished a lot in that respect. So going back to the 1980s, we had something in the U.S. called the Polar Research Board. It's part of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. So I and a couple of colleagues persuaded the Polar Research Board to create something called the Committee on Arctic Social Science. And we created that committee. We produced a report. We recommended that the U.S. National Science Foundation, in its Office of Polar Programs, create an Arctic Social Science Program. Uh, that was considered at the time kind of a radical thing, but it, it happened, and it's alive and well to this day. And that, in turn, led to something creation of something we call the International Arctic Social Science Association, which is a international body which has now been around for 30 years. Um, and it's alive and well and thriving, although, of course, subject to the impact of the current crisis on scientific cooperation. And so... There's been a real, I mean, what had been in previous times almost purely a natural science um, enterprise, Arctic studies, was now a thriving field of Arctic social science. But, of course, not only social science, but um, the current crisis has had a very, very profound negative impact on um, international scientific cooperation in general between Western scientists and Russian scientists. And that, I think, is a very, very serious, dangerous situation to to say um, that we have to uh, have a complete halt, a complete termination of scientific communication um, across London. Of course, we understand the war is awful and the war is a profound crisis, but international scientific cooperation um, and communication is a really essential feature. If you think back to the Cold War, Scientific cooperation 
between Western and Soviet scientists going back to the 1960s, 1970s, height of the Cold War, played a really, really important role in helping us to have not to put our heads in the sand and deny conflict, but to have some measure of communication and understand that while there was conflict, there were also some common interests that we needed to recognize and bear in mind. So I'm very, very worried about the idea that we should have a complete termination, a complete ban on scientific communication between Western scientists and Russian scientists. Well, this is the idea of science diplomacy, right, which can sometimes be a substitute when when foreign ministers can't talk to each other for various reasons because of the conflicts such as the Ukraine crisis. The scientists can talk, they can communicate and keep these these channels of communication open that perhaps pay dividends a little further down the line. Absolutely, and to explore possibilities, to explore ideas, to say, wait a minute, it's a, it's a very rigid, simplistic Stereotypes are are too simplistic, and we need to have a much more complex understanding of these situations to recognize that even during times of conflict, um, there can be cooperation. I mean, you know, we signed the 1959 Antarctic Treaty, the height of the Cold War. We had the 19 63 partial nuclear test ban agreement. Now, out of the Cold War, I mean, it didn't mean the Cold War wasn't a profound conflict, but by encouraging communication, we would say, yes, but um, we need to think about this as a more, you know, what people like Tom Schelling used to call a mixed motive interaction. It's a mix of Conflict and cooperation, and to say it's all just one, it's all just conflict, is a very dangerous practice. And it's the scientific communication which can help us, even in these dark times, to say, yes, but we need to continue to have some avenues of cooperation which would help us to identify some of these more cooperative opportunities, even during these periods of conflict. Well, I had meant to read it at the beginning of this uh, interview, Oren, but uh, I'll read it now. I think it's a good way to wrap things up. It's the uh, opening sentence in the preface to the uh, 1992 book of yours, Arctic Politics, and I'm quoting here. The purpose of this book is to launch Arctic politics as a field of inquiry capable of attracting the attention not only of those with specialized interests in the polar regions, but also of those who will see issues of a more generic nature being played out in a particularly clear-cut or intriguing fashion in the circumpolar north. I would say uh, that that line is... um, both the prophetic in terms of uh, what it's accomplished over these past 30 years. And, in, uh, not just this... reminding me of that uh, sentence, Eric. I kind of forgotten, but in that sense, I think um, the book was a success. 
<laughs> it's exactly what I was going to say. As somebody who's actually done a little bit of work in the Arctic social sciences myself, I'd say it's been a resounding success over these 30 years. And congratulations on that, Oren, on the 30th anniversary. I sometimes wonder whether uh, what we do in these cigars out there on the scientific can make a difference. But, you know, uh, I'm glad you reminded me of that because I think it really, it really has made a difference. Indeed, and uh, thank you very much, Owen, for joining us here on this episode of the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. Love to have you back again to uh, to share your wisdom on these uh, very uh, complicated issues during these uh, rather uh, difficult times. Thanks, Eric. It's been a pleasure.